This is Residence 104.4 FM. Flipping marvellous. How you doing? Tis I, Nicholas of Hennigan, coming at you once more with Literary London, where we talk about, you know, don't you? We talk about things literary and London-y, yeah? Yeah. Um, how are you? I hope you had a good uh, kind of, well, you know, royal holiday thing. Went quite well, didn't it? Um, bit of a big bash in Buckingham Palace. I didn't actually go, because who would, who would when you can watch it on the telly? But uh, yes, it was rather, we've had a rather festive, uh, warm springtime, haven't we? Um, and what I'm going to do today, uh, if it's all right with you, is repeat something that I had a lot of emails about before, and that's Writers London. It's called Literary London, and so we're going to take an area, as I did before, we looked at Mayfair and some of the writers that lived around there in the past and currently, and the history of the place, and I thought what we should do, uh, so thank you very much if you did uh, email, uh, or in fact I've had a few tweets as well, which is kind of cool, email by the way is radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk, it's probably the easiest way to get in touch yes and if you did thank you very much and so i thought what we'd do this time is look at an area of london i know very well because dear friend i wrote the london literary pub crawl in this very area and we're talking about fitrovia in uh, london w1 fitrovia so i suppose if you don't know the area uh it's really north of soho um, there was actually a, a I mention it later. There was actually a campaign in the, I think it was in the 80s or the 90s, to turn Fitrovia into NoHo. As you know, in, in uh, New York, there's a Soho, which is south of Hansbury or something like that, and, and north of Highsbury or whatever it's called. I forgot what it's called. Of course, the Soho uh, that we know in London, our Soho, is south of nothing. Uh, we think, probably, that the name comes from a hunting call. Soho! You know, a bit like tally-ho! Uh, because, of course, that whole area was hunting grounds back when uh, Henry VIII was doing his thing. Yes. Um, so we think that was what it was called, Soho. So, But one or two property developers decided they were going to try and gentrify north of Oxford Street, the hidden country, Fitrovia, by calling it NoHo. The idea didn't last very long, uh, mainly because of local residents who every time they saw a sign that said NoHo, they would write a P and an E after it. Graffiti love. So, of course, the sign would read No Hope. So the property developers sort of gave up uh, after after a while, which is just as well, really. Um, so its boundaries, really, if it drove its boundaries, are considered to be Euston Road to the north, Tottenham Court Road to the east, Oxford Street, as I've mentioned, to the south, and Regent Street, Langham's Place, sort of Portland Place, that way, to the west. Um, and it's uh, it's a lovely area. I kind of, I, I really like it. It's sort of a fairly densely um, packed area of narrow streets and alleyways. There are small fashion houses and media offices and tiny art galleries. Uh, you must go to, oh, what's the name? Uh, you know, she had a couple. She's still there, you'll find her. Uh, art, art gallery, yeah. It's got one in New York as well. You know, thingy bob. She does the Fitrovia Arts Festival. Listen back. Yeah, I've spoken to her before. Lovely woman. I'll never never forget her name. And uh, so it's, it's kind of cool, really. So it's got a lot of charm, I think. Easygoing charm. A lot of accessibility. But it's an area sort of generally ignored by most Londoners and tourists because the name appears on a few maps. The word Fitrovia was actually kind of brought more into popular use in the 1930s, I believe it was, um, by a newspaper reporter. Uh, whose name I've also forgotten. <laughs> hey, what? 
Now I've only had a coffee today. I don't know, the pub, the pub might beckon later, but not now. Um, but, uh, and of course, the word Fitrovia, uh, they think, was taken either from Fitzroy Square or Fitzroy Street to the north of the district. The Fitzroys, by the way, were local 18th century landowners. And Fitzroy Square is a lovely space, lovely place. Um, Griffiths Jones used to live there. Uh, he doesn't now. <laughs> he sold it to Tracy Emin, don't you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, in fact, to listen back through the archive of this show, and you'll hear, I spent quite a lot of time in Griff's kitchen while we were talking about Dylan Thomas and the Dylan Thomas centenary. A very nice kitchen he's got, too. Bigger than my flat, but anyway, very lovely. And uh, I know he's he's still stayed in the area. I think he's moved out of Fitzroy Square and moved uh, not too far, Hoban, I think. But, uh, yes, yeah, so Tracy's taking it over. You can tell because there's all the scaffolding. I shouldn't really give that away, should I? <laughs> hey, no, me name-dropping. Of course I'm not. Mick Jagger's always telling me off about that. Sorry. Yeah. So it's a lovely place, Fitzroy Square. Um, and of course, the, perhaps one of the best known pubs was the Fitzroy Tavern. Uh, for much of the 20th century, really, uh, the, the Fitzroy Tavern was the centre of a real kind of interesting, louche, bohemian scene involving perhaps most famously uh, Dylan Thomas, uh, the Welsh poet, of course, the artist Augustus John. Uh, and the writer Julian McLaren Ross, whose unfinished uh, memoir of the 40s is a great book to read if you want to know how things were happening then. Uh, Julian McLaren Ross was kind of crazy because he, he, um, he was known for taking uh, advances from publishers and then never producing the book. That was one of the things he was known for. He also was known, when he had a bit of money, he just kind of spent it. It was very extravagant. He would get taxes everywhere rather than walk. He often stayed at uh, the hotel in Russell Square, the Russell Square Hotel, uh, which is a quite an expensive hotel. And then when he ran out of money, they'd just sort of hang on to his dirty washing. Yes. And they would, um, you could, but he could then be found sleeping actually in the square, in the park. Yeah. An interesting bloke. Interesting is one word. He actually paid as well. Uh, after the Second World War, or was it during the Second World War, um, he actually paid a sailor, or was it a soldier, to stand at his par- uh, his place uh, in the Wheat Chief pub. He always liked the end of the bar downstairs. So, so as soon as the pub opened in the evening, he'd pay this soldier to go and stand in his place. And then when Julian was ready to um, avail himself of the Wheat Chief, he'd, uh, he'd just turn up and the sailor would go and... He was, he was quite happy with himself. He also famously, uh, I mean, famously, it's kind of horrible, actually. He, he became obsessed with Sonia, um, uh, the, the wife of Orwell, Sonia Orwell. Uh, Sonia Orwell, of course, was George Orwell's secretary for a while. Um, they eventually got married uh, just before, I think it was, George Orwell went up north, where, of course, he sadly uh, didn't last too long. Um, and I think then Sonia came back to London and Julie McLaren Ross had a sort of a, a banning order. I mean, it didn't exist in those days, but he was a mm, he was a character, to say the least. Uh, and his book, by the way, I should mention, uh, Love and Hunger, is well worth a read. It's a really good book, a kind of a masterpiece, probably his only masterpiece of Love and Hunger. Julie McLaren Ross. Uh, but his memoirs of the 40s, they're all set around that sort of area. As I say, unfinished because he, um, I think it was alcohol with him. What? Yes, a writer drinking too much. It's. Uh, um, there was another brilliant um, sort of poet called T- uh, J.M. Tambamutu. I always say that very difficultly. Tambi Mutu, who was the editor of Poetry London magazine, for a start. He was, a, he was one of the regulars at the Fitzroy Tavern. Also the critic novelist, uh, Rainer Happenstall, uh, who was a one-time flatmate of George Orwell. Uh, also, who used to go there? The last hangman, Pierpoint. He went there as well. He was a regular. Uh, apparently, he forgot his ropes once. 
he left his he left his hangman. I mean, this is a legend. Love. He left his hangman's noose. Uh, in the pub, I'm sure he didn't. Uh, but he, he used to go there, and actually, uh, um, also Michael Bentine, who was of potty time. Hands up, he remembers potty time. Really, you're that old? Yeah, I remember it as well. And uh, Bentine, of course, was one of the original goons, uh, the Goon Show. So it got an incredible um, atmosphere. And in fact, personally, the reason I wrote the London Literary Pub Crawl was because a mate of mine, Andy, all right, and who uh, shared a flat with me in Birmingham when we both started writing. Uh, oh, it's true. You can live on noodles. Yeah, 20p noodles. You can live on them for nearly a week. Yeah. Oh, yes, it's true. Oops, excuse me. Turn me. Turn off me. Turn off me. Yeah. That's someone, that's someone from a noodle shop saying, we'll, we'll send you some more now, if you like. Um, yes, you can. And so Andy said to me when I came to London to do my master's degree, bearing in mind I didn't go to university till I was 50. <laughs> and uh, I came to London to do my master's degree. He said, if you want a cheap pint, says Andy, go to the Fitzroy Tavern. And so I went to the Fitzroy Tavern and had me cheap pint. And in those days, downstairs, there was a bar called the, the Artists and Writers Bar. And I thought, oh, that sounds all right. It's the toilets now. Mm-hmm. Perhaps more appropriate. Uh, they've done a refurb about, was it four or five years ago? They refurbed the whole the whole pub. Um, and in fact, interestingly, again, if you go to the, if you're interested in that, the London Literary Pub Crawl, I think we've got a YouTube page. <laughs> I should know, shouldn't I? And I actually did. I did a walkthrough of the Fitzroy Tavern before it closed. Um, and when they, when they refurbished the Fitzroy Tavern, of course, it's Sam Smith's pub, they went back to the original 1800s design, almost. So you'll see from the walkthrough, the Fitzroy Tavern was one big room, one big round bar, oval bar. Of course, as happened to most pubs in the, was it the 80s, I suppose, the late 70s? The breweries realised that if you had seven rooms, you had to have seven staff, whereas if you just had one big room, you could do it with one or two staff. So all, nearly all pubs that I sort of know of, even though I wasn't really drinking in the, in the 70s, I was too young, but they knocked all these little rooms into uh, one big room, uh, which was easier to service for all sorts of reasons. And what the Fitzroy Tavern did was they went back to the little rooms, almost. They didn't actually close. They put petitions in. They're not really rooms. So they've still got a circular bar that can be serviced by uh, fewer bar staff um, but they've they've gone back to the original sort of uh, uh, breakup of the floor space, if that makes sense. And it's a lovely pub. It's got a camera pub award as well. It won an award from Camera, the campaign for real ale. And uh, I quite like it as well. They've also opened up upstairs. So before the refurb, you only had the downstairs bar and then the subway, the, the, the you know basement bar, um, the writers and artists bar. We also used to do we we used to do writing retreats at the artists bar because there was no phone signal. Oh, uh, no. They're, uh, in fact, now, in most Sam Smith pubs, and a lot of pubs are doing it, I've noticed, are very anti um, anything sort of technical. I know a lot of places are now saying no laptops. And in fact, I'm a member of a club called Soho House, uh, and you can't use your laptop in there after six o'clock. I started to think it was, they say it's to improve conversation. There's a bit of me thinks it's a way of pushing people towards their their office spaces that they also rent. But no, no, I'm cynical. And certainly the Fitzroy Tavern doesn't have any office space. So they've opened up upstairs, if you go to the Fitzroy Tavern, on the corner of Windmill Street and Charlotte Street. Uh, and upstairs they've opened it up. It used to be the old kitchens, I think. Um, and now there's another bar up there. And they've got a little kind of a snug called the Dylan Thomas Library. Which, of course, is completely there because of me starting the London Literary Pub Crawl in 2012. And nothing to do with the glorious wartime uh, legacy Yes, I am. Of course, it was completely to do with the wartime legacy. Um, it was kind of uh, fairly humorless during this during the Second World War during those times. Um, 
but it was uh, certainly not as humorless as the stiffness of the of the nearby Bloomsbury Group, because of course the Bloomsbury Group was just almost you know next next door to Fitzrovia is uh, is Bloomsbury. Um, and in the Second World War, certainly the pub and many of its neighbours sort of offered escape from the dangerous world beyond Fitrovia. Although, actually, there were bombers that landed in Fitrovia. I think uh, Rathbone Place got bombed, uh, which is why there was a 1930s post office there. Uh, sorry, a 19, is that 1940s, 50s, 60s post office there uh, on Rathbone Place. That's now been pulled down again. And guess what's there now? Facebook loves, yes. Apparently, it's the biggest Facebook factory outside of America. Yeah. So I quite like the fact that it's uh, it's still a bit media-y. But it was a place for people to go and to escape. And the guy that ran the Fitzroy Tavern, Pop Kleinfeld, Kleinfeld um, was also an interesting character. And, and what I'm going to do, I interviewed his daughter oh, a few years ago. And sadly, she passed away. She actually wrote a book about the Fitzroy Tavern. And it's a fascinating story. And what I'm going to try and do is, uh, I know it's on, the, it's on the Resonance FM archive somewhere. And I'm going to put it on the bohemianbritain.com website as well. And it's a fascinating story of her and growing up in the pub. And old Pop Kleinfeld was considered to be a bit of a tyrant, perhaps like many landlords were in those days. But he was also, he'd occasionally do things like, she, she, his daughter found out later on that, because writers and artists would go in there, and guess what? Generally, writers and artists don't have a lot of dosh. Twas ever so, twas ever thus. And of course, during the war, there wasn't much writing around. The BBC, of course, is quite nearby uh, to the uh, the Fitzroy Tavern. But uh, it's, uh, yes, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of money around. And occasionally, a writer would get back, he'd be talking in the pub about the fact his electric or gas was about to get cut off, and suddenly find the next day they weren't cutting it off, and someone had paid it for them. And that someone quite often used to be Pop Kleinfeld. So he used to do these kind of little acts of kindness. They also had a charity called Pennies from Heaven, which is still going today. And I think the, the genesis of that is that someone threw a game of darts, you know, game of us. Someone threw a dart and it hit the ceiling. And Pop said, right, if you do that again, you're going to have to pay a pound or whatever. And so he shoved a pound on a dart and, and threw the dart with the pound up into the ceiling. And it sort of started a bit of a trend. Hmm? Yes, it did. Still going today. So, uh, yeah, it was a kind of a, a terrible time, obviously, during the Second World War. I don't know why I wasn't there. But people used to kind of hang out there because you weren't really able to move around too easily. So the Fitzroy set stayed put. And then um, in the 1950s, the scene sort of slowly died away, really. The camaraderie disappeared. And then the new generation of beats, man, tended to move south to Soho. So Fitzrovia became a largely forgotten area, kind of sweatshops and Italian cafes, although it was also a big furniture. There used to be a lot of furniture in, in Fitzrovia, strangely. Yes, it was known for its furniture. Uh, it was also um, the kind of atmosphere of the place at the time was captured by Iris Murdoch in 1954's Under the Net, in which Mrs. Tinkham keeps a, quote, dusty, dirty, nasty-looking corner shop, unquote, in the area. But trendification has set in a bit during the 1980s, as I mentioned. It's not called No Hope anymore. It's still called Fitzrovia, but there's a lot of media agencies there, TV companies and uh, magazines that perhaps can't afford the rents in Soho. And if you've watched a, a television show, I can't remember which channel it's on at the moment, it's called 10%. Uh, and it's about an agency. It's a remake of Call My Agent, which is a hugely successful French um, uh, television show. And 10% is actually all filmed in Fitzrovia. 
uh, just down from the Newman's Arms, which is another great pub, um, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But let me just tell you now, you're listening to uh, Nick Hennigan. Hello. Yes. Hello there. Uh, on Resonance 104.4 FM. Also, we're on www.bohemianbritain.com and all good podcast suppliers everywhere. Oh, yeah. So, looking at writers living around Fitrovia, just north of Oxford Street, what else can I tell you about? Well, it's a fantastic place. Literary pubs. The Fitzroy Tavern, there's the Duke of York, of course, which uh, Anthony Burgess was having a drink there with his wife Lynn in 1943 when a razor gang marched in, as they were known in those days, ordered several pints of beer and poured the contents on the floor. They threw their glasses at the wall and brandished the jagged edges at the terrified customers when Lynn Burgess proclaimed, because she was only a small woman, everyone thought, what on earth is she doing? And she got up to the to the lead thug and went, that's a dreadful waste of good beer. Uh, the gang's leader was behind the bar and pulled pint after pint, which he ordered her to drink, and Anthony Burgess tried to intervene and but was warned off. Six pints they poured and Lynn down the lot. <laughs> The gang was so impressed, they handed over the money for all the beer they'd drunk and offered her protection from other local gangs. She later told Burgess that she found herself unable to take the roughs seriously. She said they reminded her of Pinky's gang in Graham Greene's Brighton Rock. It was possibly the inspiration, though, of course, for Alex and his droogies. George Orwell went on, of course, to write Clockwork Orange. Percy Street's kind of an interesting space as well. If you just sort of go around the corner, end of Charlotte Street and Percy Street. Um, it used to be the Eiffel Tower Hotel. It's also when Dylan Thomas met Caitlin Thomas, his wife. She was actually not with him. She was uh, with the painter, of course, who was known for being a bit of a lad. Um Augustus John. Um, and uh, it's an interesting place because the, the Poets Club, there was a thing called the Poets Club that began meeting, because it's a hotel and a restaurant as well, when it was called the Eiffel Tower. I think it was called that then. Uh, but it was also in, in 1909, um, it was the driving force of the, the Poets Club was uh, Ezra Pound, who was dissatisfied with the poetry of the day. Apparently that time, 1909-ish, was a great period for prose, but it wasn't so good for verse. So he suggested replacing the then fashionable poetic styles with Japanese tanka and haikai. Um, by 1914, the Vorsicists, as they were known, the avant-garde art and literature group led by Wyndham Lewis, were also meeting there to thrash out the contents of Blast. And Blast was a fairly short-lived publication. It was printed on yellow paper with grotesque pink covers. Um, its avowed purpose being to blast away the Victorian attitudes Yes. Um, after the First World War, regular lunches there included Aldous Huxley, of course, and separately, Evelyn Waugh, who used the Eiffel Tower Hotel as a model for Lottie Crump's hotel in his novel Vile Bodies, which he wrote in 1930. Uh, the place at the time was run by an Austrian, Rudolf Stulich, I think is how you say it. Um, he'd reputedly been chef to Emperor Franz Joseph. Yes. He would usher upstairs customers who wanted to use a private room. And uh, one couple who prospered from this arrangement was Dylan Thomas and Caitlin, who I mentioned earlier. Their affair in the late 30s was bankrolled involuntary by Augustus John. There is the story that, in fact, Dylan Thomas and Caitlin, when they met at the Wheatsheaf pub around the corner, fell in love instantly. It was love at first sight. He had his head on her lap. 
and by the uh, end of the night, bearing in mind she'd gone in there with Augustus John, uh, they left together, apparently. Augustus John was sort of, um, yes, they're all a bit bohemian in that sort of sense, and went round the corner to the, uh, the Eiffel Tower Hotel. The artist Augustus John discovered this only when Stulik, the, the gaffer there, presented him with a bill for £43, which was then a tidy sum. And Augustus John apparently said, I know you treat me outrageously, but £43 for lunch for two is a bit steep. And uh, apparently then <laughs> Stulik replied in his sort of broken English, he's not for lunch only, little Welshman with curly hair. <laughs> that, of course, was Dylan Thomas. He stays two weeks and eats, and he says you pay. So uh, in 1938, the place became the White Tower Restaurant. Then it became the number one restaurant. And now it's known as the House of Ho. I'll let that hang there for a while. Yes, the House of Ho. Mm. There's uh, another little few other places that I think are probably worth looking at. Um, the upstairs room of um, Julia and Winston's room. Uh, which was uh, the upstairs room in which Julia and Winston conduct their outrageous affair in George Orwell's 1984, is modelled on a flat at number 18, Percy Street. This is where Sonia Brownell, who came, later became Orwell's second wife and who, as I mentioned earlier, attracted unwanted attentions, uh, he, she used to live there in the mid-1940s. So since Orwell was not at that stage, he had not won her over, using the place as the inspiration for Julia and Winston's affair was probably wish fulfilment on his part. I'm kind of guessing we'll never know. Yes. The Elise restaurant, number 13, during the 1940s, Orwell, Arthur Kessler and Malcolm Muggeridge, bless, used to eat at the restaurant two or three times a week. Uh, and after the war, George Orwell returned with Graham Greene going out of his way as... Uh, at the Acropolis uh, to annoy the owner by taking off his jacket and being thrown out. <laughs> yes. yes. The Weed Chief Pub as well uh, is a glorious place, as I mentioned before. It's where George Orwell famously uh, met uh, uh, Caitlin. Uh, and they used to have, I think they still do, I should double have checked, shouldn't I? I should have checked before I mentioned it. But there was a group called the Sohemians that meet in the upstairs room at the Weed Chief. It's run at the moment by Di. Hello, Di. He's a good lad. Um, we've done various productions and things there as well. He's helped us out in the past. Uh, yes, and the Sohemians Society, they meet there and uh, they, they they refuse to call Fitrovia Fitrovia because it's not. It's Soho, North Soho. The name came sort of back again into popularity in the 60s when the local community association uh, put on a, a community fete, effectively a fair uh, in the area. And they used the term Fitrovia, the Fitrovia Festival for the first time. Uh, but of course, it's fairly, it's very well acknowledged if you know where you're going. I'm just trying to think of where else I can tell you about in Fitrovia that might be of interest. Um, oh, of course, Charlotte Street. Charlotte Street's a great place if you want to eat. Uh, you know, since lockdown's eased, it's sort of come back, uh, come back to life again. In Anthony Powell's book, A Buyer's Market, in 1952, part of his Dance to the Music of Time series, Charlotte Street is described as retaining a certain unprincipled integrity of character, which I quite like. <laughs> and it's now sort of Fitrovia's main street. Um, at number 76 is the site of Rupert Brook. If I should die, think only this of me. There is a part of some foreign field that is forever England. Yep, he lived there. I think it's a bank now, actually. Um, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, number 76. Le Trois, which is still... Is Le Trois still going? Do you know, I haven't been there for a few months. Uh, but it was uh, T.S. Eliot's favourite restaurant anyway. Um, in uh, 1914, 
Ezra Pound and Wyndham Lewis celebrated the launch of their magazine Blast at L'Etoile. Uh, it was certainly was there just before lockdown. Naughty me, I should have I should have checked actually from my notes. And then uh, Bertorell is at number nineteen. I think that's still there. Is that still there? I should have checked before I spoke to you, shouldn't I? But that was an interesting. It's, on, it's number nineteen, Fitzrovia, uh, Charlotte Street, anyway, Fitzrovia. And in the nineteen fifties. Bertelli's was the home of the Wednesday Club, which was founded by the reviewer and the kind of minor novelist, I suppose, uh, Philip Toynbee. Uh, it was named in honour of Richard Hannay's Thursday Club in John Buchanan's book, The Three Hostages. So the Wednesday Club attracted scores of writers, actually, including Rex Warner, uh, John Berger, uh, Christopher Isherwood. Um, and conversation was usually of the highest intellectual order. On one occasion, apparently, it was revealed that Ezra Pound's name in Japanese meant... This picture of a phallus costs 10 yen. Yeah, I don't know uh, Japanese myself. But apparently at one of the lunches, T.S. Eliot was asked to cite his all-time favourite piece of prose and the audience hushed, wondering which masterpiece the great poet would deliver. Would it be a passage from Moby Dick, Barnaby Rudge, or perhaps Heart of Darkness? No. T.S. Eliot stood up and recited. Well, cried Boss McGinty at last, is he here? Is Birdie Edwards here? Yes, McMurdo answered slowly. Birdie Edwards is here. I am Birdie Edwards. No one recognised the source. It was actually the Sherlock Holmes novella, The Valley of Fear. <laughs> Kingsley Amis, uh, once he had made his name with his first novel, Lucky June, which is great, began lunching there once a week as well in the late 1950s with Anthony Powell. So, uh, yes, that's number 19, Charlotte Street. So you can see, I mean, I'm talking about Fitrovia. We're we're blessed in London, aren't we? With sort of spaces and places and uh, the sort of history of of of, um, of literature. Uh, I I have a we have a great time there. We we do the London Literary Pub Crawl without sounding too much like a commercial. It goes out every week. Of course, it didn't go out at all during the lockdown, and it's not really a commercial venture. It's more a sharing of the love. It's hosted by various writers. I like doing it myself, actually, when I can. Uh, or, um, uh, yeah, because the people that come on it, you know, it's books, books, beer and literature. What's not to like? So that's Petrovia. Uh, if there's any particular part of London you'd like me to have a look at, or uh, perhaps you've got your own favourite parts, then uh, do get in touch. Uh, conversely, as well, if you've got any sort of event happening, if there's anything that you think we should know about, uh, the good literary people of London and the world. Oh, hello, America, by the way. Yes, I got some stats through, apparently. Um, 40, we're nearly on 50,000 downloads, I think. Is it 49,000 downloads? Um, and about 60% are in the US of A. So, hello, America. We still love you. I love you very, very much. Um, and I'm hoping to come and see you in September, but that's another story. Uh, so, uh, yes, do get in touch if there's any event happening. We're going to be looking at all various literary festivals that are coming up um, over the next uh, few months. It's great that things are happening again. If you've written a book, then get in touch as well. Let's have a chat. We can have a talk about it. Um, and uh, as I say, any particular events, the best way to get in touch probably is radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk and uh, I don't know if anyone's going to the Edinburgh Festival this year but I am oh yes we're working on the script at the moment uh, Edinburgh Festival if you don't know is the biggest open arts festival in the world and the Fringe I think it's celebrating its 70th anniversary and in fact when you talk about the, the Edinburgh Festival there actually there are a number of festivals there's the Book Festival which I'm sure we'll be talking about 
Uh, and then there's the Fringe Festival, which is perhaps the best known, because that's where you know most of the comedy people come from. And then there's the International Festival, which is slightly more highbrow. I'm sure they won't mind me saying that. Um, but it's a fantastic month. And they used to run the Film Festival there as well in August, but they got they got a bit sniffy, I think, and decided they were being upstaged somewhat. So so they exited stage left and uh, took two. Uh, I don't actually know when the Edinburgh Film Festival is. I was up there one year with a play, and I uh, made a short film called Boy Girl Boy Bike, a kind of coming of age thing. Um, it was only a short, uh, with some help from ITV's first cuts. Thank you very much, ITV. Uh, and uh, it got selected for the Edinburgh Festival, what they called NBX, New British Expo. And so the film was shown there. So I was up there with a play in the evening and a film that uh, went on in the morning. Yeah, it was at that time that I realised that it's not really good to drink red wine when you're doing your film launch in the morning and then drink red wine or beer when you're doing your play launch in the evening. It's not big and it's not clever and it gets very fuzzy the next day. So if you are going to Edinburgh, then you must be careful. You also must let me know if you go to the Edinburgh Festival and we'll meet up for a pint or something or a half a pint or maybe a glass of water. Hmm? Yes. Either way, I shall see you next time. Thank you so much for your company. I'm Nick Hennigan. We're on bohemianbritain.com. It's literary London, but mainly we're on Resonance 104.4 FM. <laughs>